Welcome to the Hope CC Resources Podcast, where we revisit sermons, talks, and discussions from the archives of Hope Community Church in Minnesota. If you would like to find more resources from Hope Community Church, please visit hopeccresources.com or download the Hope CC app. Today's resource is a message by Pastor Steve Treichler called The Symptoms of Serious Sin. It was originally given on May 18th, 2008, as part of the series, Be Killing Sin, or It Will Be Killing You. You can find all other messages from this series by visiting hopeccresources.com or by downloading the HopeCC app. If you thought Core's leap from lost to that passage was, was something, hang on, this is much better. 1972, Mel Brooks came out with his first film, his first major film. <laughs> Young Frankenstein, <clears throat> and uh, in, it's a classic movie, and in one of the scenes, there's, there's excuse me, Frankenstein, as he likes to be called in the movie, and uh, in, in that movie, there's a bunch of main characters. Uh, Gene Wilder got his first kind of shot at, at who he was, Terry Garr, who's from Minnesota, she became well-known, and, a, and a, a man who was not very well-known up to that time was a man by the name of Marty Feld. Man, if you remember him, if you're a fan of all of Weird Al Yankovic, instead of Betty A. Davis Eyes, he did Marty Feldman Eyes, if you remember that. It was a great song. I like Weird Al. Uh, so this, uh, this particular scene that I'm going to describe is a scene where um, uh, Igor, who's Marty Feldman, has this huge hump, and he kind of you know, walks around like this all the time. And Frankenstein comes to him in a scene where they're talking to each other, and he says, you know, I don't mean to embarrass you, but I'm a brilliant surgeon, and I, and I could do something about that hump. And you remember what Igor said? What hump? Right? Now, that's the whole way the movie is. So if you don't like that kind of humor, uh, it's not funny, but I think it's hilarious. And so, what hump? He has no concept of them being a hump at all on his back. This morning, I, I, I'm going to be a little bit of Frankenstein with you. I'm going to be the guy that says, I don't know if I'm a brilliant surgeon or not, but I'm going to help you out with that hump. And I hope you're not going to say, what hump? Because uh, what we're going to talk about today is some very serious stuff. It's very, uh, it's convicting in a lot of ways. And what a lot of us have on areas of our life that we don't want other people to see, uh, we have kind of this what hump mentality. It's like, well, it's not so bad. You've got to understand that in certain areas of your life, and I'm going to just start off by offending you one and a half minutes into the sermon. Here we go. On certain areas of your life, you have very poor judgment. You do. I do too. And other people come along me and say, why are you doing this? And I explain it, and they say, hmm, that's stupid. <laughs> to which I usually reply, it doesn't seem stupid to me. But then they say, that's because in this area of your life, you have very poor judgment. I, I explained this to a buddy of mine. I was talking about this very concept up when we went fishing. And on the way back, he de- kept describing areas after one after another and after another in his life where he ex- exhibited poor judgment. And he'd kind of laugh about it. He'd say, I guess buying this certain thing that broke down in like a boat or something. Uh, uh, it, it, my uncle used to work on boats. He said the two happiest days of boat owner's life. You know them? day you buy the boat, day you sell the boat. Yep. By the way, if you have a boat, I'd love to borrow a boat. <laughs> I don't want to own a boat. I just want to know someone who owns a boat, right? Anyway, 
total rabbit. I hope I caught it. The, the concept here is, is uh, there are areas in our lives where we just simply don't have good judgment. And that's what we want to look at this morning. Um, we're in a series right now. We've been going through uh, a book. The book is called uh, The Mortification of Sin. It's in this volume. I think we even still have a couple more available. If you like it, you can also, it's an old, it's an old written in 1650, so you could get it online too, free, no big deal. And uh, we've been going through this book a little bit at a time. And this is a heavy book. This, this week we covered six pages. It took me two hours to work, rework, third time through those six pages. To kind of give you a little bit of a heads up, this is our seventh of ten messages from that book on overcoming sin or mortification of sin is the real title. How do we kill sin in our lives? I put a little grid together here. The grid looks like this. It kind of describes the whole book. Go one more there. Oh, thank you. I always forget that. That's the theme verse of the whole series. If you, through the Spirit, do mortify the deeds of the body, you shall live. Okay, now go to my grid there. There we go. And it goes from the bottom up. So you're kind of building a foundation. We started off, first of all, by talking about uh, why, do, why do it? Why try to kill sin in your life? And there was three simple answers. Because I must, you have to do it. If you're a follower of Jesus, it's part of the walk of Christ. Secondly, because you can do it. You have been given authority and power through Christ so that no one can say, I just can't do it. You can. And the last thing is because you get to. It's a joyful thing to do that. Two weeks ago then, I believe it was two weeks ago, Cor talked about what mortification is, what is it not. It morti- mortifying sin means you're killing it, but you don't ever kill it dead dead. You just kill it kind of dead. Mostly dead. Alright? And it's a deal where every morning you wake up and you have to like that game, you got to whack a mole. Whack that mole. Whack it. And you see him pop up and you got to be diligent. You just whack the mole constantly as those things come up. Anybody? You know what I'm talking about? Whack a mole? Yeah, alright. So, uh, that's what, what mortification is, and it's not. It, do, it never means that you'll never wrestle with sin again. You will wrestle with sin. If you're a follower of Christ, you will wrestle with sin. But mortification means you have victory. An unfrequent victory. Last week, we talked about two general directions. That's a fancy way of being saying two big things. Two big concepts that if you don't start here, you'll never be able to kill even one sin. And they were simply this. One, you must believe You must trust Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins, that he loves you, that he cares for you, that he's your life. You must put him there, and then you must obey him. Trust and obey. You must obey him. You must go there. This week, we're moving into, for this week, and then three more weeks after this, we're moving into chapters 9 to 13 of the book, if you're following through in the book. This is more particular areas. This is, if if you've been following along in the series, you're probably going, this is all great stuff. How do I do this? How do I do this? And that's the areas we're getting into this week. Now, all that said, in particular, what are we going to talk about this week? I want to talk to you about symptoms of serious sin. I don't do that very often when they all start with S's or anything, but it just did. It just happened to. Symptoms of sin that is serious. Now, is all sin serious? Yes. But are there areas in your life that if these things are not more dealt with than perhaps you are right now dealing with them, it'll lead you down a road that you don't want to go. And that is true. There are areas of sin that need to be taken extra effort towards. 
I want to I walk you through that. Last week I did all my own stuff up front, then went to the Bible. I'm going to flip it this time. This week we're going to look at the Bible first, uh, and then look at some, some things that John Owen has to say about it. So if you have a Bible with you, I want you to open up to Hebrews chapter 3. If you don't know where Hebrews is, it's in the New Testament. It's about two-thirds of the way. So if you're looking at a Bible, it would be roughly about right there. Whoops, right there. Nope, that's Romans. Hebrews would be right somewhere... You have no idea if I'm there or not, do you? I could be there now. <laughs> Somewhere right in there. Hebrews would be about that far in. So if you want to grab Bible, or you can just grab that insert that's there. Hebrews chapter 3. I want to walk you through Hebrews chapter 3. And what I think is one of the main, again, we have all these great passages on battling sin. Hebrews chapter 3 is one of them. And I want to take time this morning uh, to to deal with this whole thing in its historical context. All right, so Hebrew chapter 3, kind of going through it in its historical context. All right, let's kind of mosey our way through this. We don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews. Uh, they're They're pretty smart, though. They had the thing pretty well figured out. We'll find out that in just a minute. Verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers, who share in the heavenly calling... Fix your thoughts on Jesus, the apostle and high priest whom we confess. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, testifying to what would be said in the future. But Christ is faithful as a son over God's house. And we are his house if we hold on to our courage and the hope of which we boast. Now that's the first chunk. The first idea is here is to fix yourself. Fix yourself on Jesus. Now, one of the big questions, BQs that I have is how does the Old Testament and the Old Covenant of what God was doing with the people of Israel from Genesis to Malachi, <laughs> the Italian prophet, then from, from there, there's like these years of silence, 400 years of silence in between there, and then comes Matthew to Revelation, or maps, or concordance if you've got a fancy Bible. All that, there's more. How does that all fit together? Hebrews is an awesome book to see how it all fits together. It's a great book for that. And here we even see this in chapter 3. This guy is very, we don't know who wrote this, very smart. And he starts to compare Jesus to Moses, and he says Jesus is greater than Moses, but he's like Moses. And we're going to come back to Moses in just a little bit. Now, a little, little. Uh, I'm just going to give it away here. I'm going to give away the whole series. How do you kill sin? Sunday school answer. Jesus. Okay? More faith. More faith, Jesus, those kind of things. Those are easy Sunday school answer type things. How do you mortify sin? The answer is Jesus. You fix yourself on Jesus. Notice what it didn't say though. You don't fix yourself on religion. You don't fix yourself on a, system, a rules to behavior modification yourself. You don't fix yourself on going to church. Those are all good things. But this doesn't change you. To get changed, you, you, you stick, you lick your fingers and you stick them in the outlet of Jesus. 
That will change you. Fix yourself on Jesus. Now, he does a masterful job here. He goes to Moses. So let's see where that goes. Verse 7. So, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the desert where your fathers tested and tried me and for 40 years saw what I did. That is why I was angry with that generation and said, their hearts are always going astray and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. What's the warning here? He's saying in Hebrews chapter 3, he's saying, don't be like this previous situation. Don't be like that. And he, Remember he brought up Moses before. So we're going to take a look at where this goes. And he says, what's the problem with them? It's very important. What's the problem? Today, if you hear his voice, do not, what? Harden your heart. Don't do that. Now, if you're like me, and I study this stuff. I mean, I'm a professional Christian, right? So, I mean, I, I, I should know this stuff, but I'm like, where did that come from? I didn't know. So I had to look it up. That's a quote from Psalm 95. It's a quote of David, King David, who came years and years and years after Moses. If you remember, Moses was, you know, let my people go, come out of Egypt and all that kind of thing from Pharaoh. They came out, they were in the, they were in the, the desert, they were supposed to go to the promised land, but we'll see what happens. They didn't, they didn't get there right away. David is talking in a psalm, Psalm 95, about this, and he quotes that whole thing. Go ahead and let's look at Psalm 95, he quotes basically that whole thing. Today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah as you did that day in Manasseh in the desert where your fathers tested and tried me, though they had seen what I did. He, he just lists the whole thing. It's, that's exactly where the author of Hebrews gets this. Okay? So David is quoting that. Now what's he talking about? And the, now that's a new thing. That wasn't in Hebrews. This Meribah and Massa. Where did that come from? So you, if you have a computer Bible, you click on it, and it takes you to two different places. Uh, one is talking about this situation, and the other one talks about this 40 years situation. The first situation comes from Exodus chapter 17. Moses has brought the people out of Israel. They're in the, they're in the wilderness right now. And this is what happens. Exodus chapter 17. And the reason we're looking for this is because the command is, don't harden your heart. The best way to figure out how to do that is to look at somebody else who's been a bad example. Right? If you feel like your life is just worthless, at least you're a bad example for others. Alright? <laughs> so that's what these guys are. Israel, in a lot of ways, is just a bad example. Look at what they did. Exodus 17. The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of sin, uh, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. Now stop right there. Dude, if you're the pastor of this church of Israel, and you're just, you're just on a little hiking trip, and now they say, give us water, my first thing would be, ain't in my job description. Uh, who, you don't want to be a pastor? Uh, okay. Then Moses says, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? God said he'll take care of you. He will take care of you. Yes, you're a little thirsty right now. 
but he will take care of you. But the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. What does grumbling look like? How do you do grumble without email? I don't know. I don't know. I usually get the email thing. But uh, you know, grumble. Stupid. When you come out of here for anyway? Dumb. Thirsty. Very thirsty. I'm really thirsty. Stupid Moses. What's the deal? I imagine that's grumbling. Something to that effect. Or maybe two women over an espresso talking. Plenty of water in Egypt. Now we're out here. There's no water. I mean, I've been walking forever. And there is no water. Who is this Moses guy? They're, they're sipping their espresso, which is really dry because there's no water. <laughs> they're grumbling. They said, why do you bring us out of Egypt to make us and our children uh, and livestock die of thirst? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, what am I going to do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. The Lord answered Moses, walk on ahead of the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the, the Nile and go. I will stand there before you by the rock at Oreb. Strike the rock and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel and he called the place Massa and Meribah because that means like grumbling quarreling because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord saying is the Lord among us or not now when we get this picture you kind of realize this is close to some most scholars say between one and two million people so when they stand on this rock and he nails the rock that's a lot of water whoosh comes out and it's a rebuke to them saying you tested me you tested me you complained you grumbled you got a hardened heart. Now, I don't know why the author of Hebrews picks up from David, who picks up from this singular event. But if you read through the Old Testament, it's one thing after another, after another, after another. These people are, are so upset. They are, they're, there's people that are very hard to deal with. In fact, there's one point where they're complaining, we don't have any meat to eat. We're sick of eating this manna, which God had given them. It's kind of like bread-like substance. So God says, you want meat? I'll give you meat. And he gives them this quail. And they get so excited about the quail that they gorge themselves. And God just keeps sending them. And more and more and more. It's kind of this passage. You want quail? I'll give you quail. You just quail everywhere. And it's this constant battle with these very stubborn, obstinate people who are demanding of God, you brought us here, you better take care of us. Instead of saying, God, we'll follow you wherever you go. It seems like a subtle difference. That's the whole difference between not having your heart hardened and having it hardened. All these events, all these events, and the people that are along this journey develops into a very hardened heart, and it leads to the creme de la creme of hardness, which is Numbers chapter 13. He talks about this 40 years. You got to see what they did. You got to see what they did in order to understand this passage in Hebrews. Numbers 13. I'm going to read through this. It's a few verses. It just, it's basically just speaks to itself. First, start in verse 21. This is this people of Israel, and now they come right to the promised land, and they're going to scout it out. So they went up and explored the land from the desert of Zin, and went as far as Rehob towards Lebo and Hamath. They went up through the Negev and came to Hebron, where Ammonah, Sheshebah, Telamon, descendants of Alek lived, 
Hebron had been built seven years before Zon in Egypt. When they reached the valley of Escala, you all know where these places are, so you don't mind if I mispronounce them, they cut off a branch bearing a single g- cluster of grapes. Two of them carried it on a pole between them, along with some promigant, uh, promigant, and also some figs. That place was called the Valley of Eshelor because the cluster of grapes the Israelites cut off there. They go into this land. It's awesome. This land where God promised them the grapes. The grapes are like grapefruit. I have no idea. They're good grapes, though. They're good stuff. Verse 25. At the end of 40 days, they returned from exploring the land. They sent out 12 guys. They came back to Moses and Aaron, the whole Israelite community at Kadesh in the desert of Paran. Then they reported to them and to the whole assembly and showed them the fruit of the land. They gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Here's its fruit. But, there's always a but. The people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw descendants of Anak there, and Anak was one scary dude. The Amaleks live in the Negev, the Hittites, Jebusites, Amorites live in the hill country, and the Canaanites live near the sea and along the Jordan. Then Caleb, I love Caleb. Then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, we should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. I love that dude. He says, look at, there's all these people, and they're strong, and they're, so what, man? We can do it. But the men who had gone with them, up with him said, we can't attack those people. They're stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. They said, the land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim. Woo-hoo. The descendants of Anak come down from the Nephilim. They seem, we seem like grasshoppers in our own eyes. That's interesting. So you, they're, they're, I'm now viewing myself through you and projecting it on. And we looked the same to them. That night all the people of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. Why? Because they heard these reports. They can't take this. What did God say? I'm going to give it to you. You're not bigger than the Egyptians either. Remember that sea thing? The sea, it's deep. Ah, uh uh-huh. Ah, uh uh-huh. Dude, it doesn't matter how big they are. It's not about you. All the Israelites, oh, here's that word, grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And the whole assembly said to them, if only we had died in Egypt. Somehow that's better. Oh, I can't believe it. We're out here and we're going to die. If only we just would have died over there. That'd be better. See, that's stupid. Okay. (laughs) Or in this desert, why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and our children will be taken as plunder. (laughs) Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt and be slaves again? Yeah. And they said to each other, we should choose a new leader and go back to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell face down in front of the whole Israelite assembly gathered there. Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Jephthah, who were among those who had explored the land, tore their clothes and said to the entire Israelite assembly, the land we passed through and explored is exceedingly good. Here it is. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land. And a land flowing with milk and honey will be given to us. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not be afraid of the people or the land because we will swallow them up. (laughs) Grasshoppers swallowing people. It's a great image. Their protection is gone. He's gone, but the Lord is with us. 
Do not be afraid of them. But the whole assembly talked about stoning them. Then the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the Israelites. The Lord said to Moses, How long will these people treat me with contempt? How long will they refuse to believe in me in spite of all the miraculous signs I've performed among them? I will strike them down with a plague and destroy them, but I will make you into a nation greater and stronger than they. Moses pleads for them. He says, Then the Egyptians will hear about it. By your power you brought these people up from among them, and they will tell the inhabitants of this, of, of this land about it. They have already heard that you, O Lord, are with these people, and that you, O Lord, have been seen uh, face to face, that your cloud stays over them, and that you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. If you put these people to death all at one time, the nations who heard this report about you will say, the Lord was not able to bring these people into the land. He promised that on oath. So he slaughtered them in the desert. Now may the Lord's strength be displayed just as you have declared. The Lord is slow to anger, abounding in love and forgiving sin and rebellion, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the, guilt, uh, the, the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. In accordance with your great love, forgive the sin of these people, just as you have pardoned them from the time they left Egypt until now. These people have always been a pain in the neck, God, but it's about your glory and showing yourself off, so do it. And God says, all right, I will do that. I have forgiven them as you asked. Nevertheless, as surely as I live and as surely as the glory of the Lord fills the whole earth, not one of the men who saw my glory and the miraculous signs I performed in Egypt and in the desert, but who disobeyed me and tested me ten times, not one of them will ever see the land I promised on oath to their forefathers. No one who has treated me with contempt will ever see it. But because my servant Caleb has a different spirit and follows me wholeheartedly, I will bring him into the land he went to and his descendants will inherit. Since the Amalekites and Canaanites are living in the valleys, turn back tomorrow and set out towards the, the desert along the route to the Red Sea. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, How long will this wicked community grumble against me? I have heard the complaints of these grumbling Israelites. So tell them, as surely as I live, declares the Lord, I will do to you the very things I heard you say. In this desert your bodies will fall, every one of you 20 years old or more who has counted in the census and who has grumbled against me. Not one of you will enter the land I swore with uplifted hand to make your home, except Caleb, son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, son of Nun. As for your children that you said will be taken as plunder, I'll bring them in to enjoy the land you have rejected. But you, your bodies will fall in this desert. Your children will be, the she will be shepherds here for 40 years, suffering for your unfaithfulness until the last of your bodies lies in the desert. For 40 years, one year for each of the 40 days, you explored the land. You will suffer for your sins and know what it is like to have me against you. That's an awesome phrase. I, the Lord, have spoken, and I will surely do these things to this whole wicked community which is banded together against me. They will meet their end in this desert. Here they will die. The author of Hebrews says, don't do that. Today when you hear his voice, don't harden it like they did in the desert. They grumbled, but they did more than grumble. God said this was something for them, 
And they reacted out of fear and said, no way. And it angered God incredibly. Don't harden your heart. Now the warning here implicit in Hebrews chapter 3 is, if you do continue to harden your heart, you will get a spanking, a severe one. Because it's this passage says, you will know what it is like when I am against you. I don't know about you, but I do not want the Almighty God against me. That scares the living daylights out of me. And it should in a healthy way. If you don't have that fear of God this morning, I hope I just gave it to you. And I know you're saying, what hump? And I'm saying, that hump. Back to Hebrews chapter 3. That's all the context of what he's talking about. And now here comes, the, here comes the things to do. See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. See to it. Make every effort so that you don't end up your life and you're like those people standing where God would give to you and he says, no, you're not going in. See to it that whatever it takes... To mortify sin so you don't have a sinful, unbelieving heart that ends up turning away from the, from the living God. Now, don't get me wrong. They intellectually believed in God, remember? They still, don't, don't confuse the two. They said, why would the Lord bring us here? So they didn't like say, well, God doesn't exist. He still exists. That's not what believing with a capital B means. Believing with a capital B means you actually trust and move and go forward. But here's the opposite This is so interesting. The opposite of not having a sinful, unbelieving heart is, but encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. What's the antidote to having a sinful, unbelieving heart that that falls away from the living God? It says, the antidote is, encourage one another daily, encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by the trickiness of sin, the deceitfulness of sin, those areas where I have poor judgment, someone else is in my life saying, that hump, that hump. How not to fill myself up It's to get myself in relationships with people where they're willing to point at my life and say, brother, you got a hump. I can take care of that. I can help you. You're going to have to kill that thing. And then the last part of Hebrews chapter 3 says this. The evidence that we have that we are really followers of Jesus is very interesting. It says, "We, we, we have come to share in Christ, if we hold firmly till the end the confidence we had at first. Dude, that is, there's some weird verb things going on there. We have come to share in Christ, so a past event. I know that my relationship with Jesus Christ is real if I hold firmly to the end a future event the confidence I had at first. That's interesting. It says, I know that my relationship was right with Christ 
if I'm continuing on in that relationship. Now, there's a phrase that people, there's a theological phrase called eternal security. What does that mean? In other words, if a person comes to a point in their life where they've trusted Christ, does that mean they could ever lose their salvation? They could ever lose that. And people debate about that. The two big sides of that are Calvinists and Arminians. Calvinists would say, once you're saved, you're, you're good to go. Arminians, on the other hand, John Wesley and others like that, Methodists, would lean and say, no, you could go so far as such a point as to fall away and you would lose that salvation. It sounds like they totally disagree. Actually, they don't disagree at all. The Calvinist would say, if a person falls away completely, is no longer walking with God at all, is not holding firmly to those things he had in the beginning, is coming to that point where they've come to the promised land and saying, I don't trust God at all. I'm not going to live that way. The Calvinist would say, it proves that you never were. The Arminian would just say, no, you once were, and then you weren't. The end of both of them, they say, is you never were, or you're not, you're not saved. Now, you might be saying, wait a minute then, does it, are my works what gets me into heaven? No, totally not. Okay, don't, don't go there. The equation is simply this. Faith plus nothing equals salvation, eternity with God, and good works. But if your life isn't changed now and you don't have an inkling towards wanting to go towards God, if grumbling with God is your, that's all you have, you've got to question whether or not this was real faith. The reformers like to say it this way. It says that it is faith alone that justifies or makes a person right with God. It is faith alone that justifies. But the faith that justifies is never alone. So if there's not something in you that's transformed and you want to follow God, you've got to ask yourselves, am I real? Is this really? Am I really a follower? Am, am I Christian? Am I a follower of Jesus? And that's what he goes on to say here. And it's, these are hard words. It's a hard warning. He says, verse 15, As it has just been said, Today if you hear his voice... Do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. Who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all those Moses led out of Egypt? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the desert? And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest, if not to those who disobeyed? So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. This is a serious warning. Sin can take you out. It can take you out. You might have thought all along, I'm doing just fine, and all of a sudden it just takes you out, and you're saying, you know what? What happened? So with that said, I want to go through a few things in Owen. Five, these are relatively quick. Five symptoms of serious sin. Symptoms of sin that it's serious. You got to do something. First one, I'm going to use his word here because you'll be impressed then. Of course, if I mispronounce it, you won't, but I can't even say prama, prama, yeah, and figs. It's inveterateness. I did say it right. Inveterateness. First one is inveterateness. If you're following around the book, that's what he says. It's the state of being. Hardened, or there's habitual, deep-rooted, chronic sin in your life. And it's just there, constantly. Owen says this. 
If it has lain long corrupting in your heart, if you have suffered it to abide in power and prevalency without attempting vigorously, there's, there's no attempt to kill it, uh, the killing of it and the healing of the wounds you have received by it for some long season, your distemper is dangerous. It's dangerous. Now, I want to say that and I also want to say this. Now, you put these in your pipe and smoke it because they seem like opposites. There will probably be sins you're going to wrestle with all of your life. I'm not, I'm not, they need to be dealt with. But those ones where for a long time you've just said, you know what, no big deal, I'm just not, it's, it just licked me, I'm not going to, I can't do anything about it. Those are the ones that are very, very dangerous. Second ones. The ones that you just say, ah, I understand the cross. The cross is my ticket. Jesus died for my sins. Woohoo! Live like hell. Those sins that go into that category in your mind where you just take license and you say, it's no big deal. Sin's no big deal. Jesus died for it. First of all, you don't understand the cross and what he did. Second of all, you don't understand what happened on the cross, that the wrath of God was poured out for sin. Sin is a huge deal. Owen on this is good. He says, applying grace and mercy to an unmortified sin. The flesh would fain or eagerly and gladly be indulged into, uh, unto upon the amount, uh, account of grace and every word that is spoken of mercy, it stands to, to catch it and to pervert it to its own corrupt aims and purposes. To apply mercy then to a sin not vigorously mortified is to fulfill the end of the flesh. That's complicated. Basically he's saying this. You got the story half right. Christ died for your sins. He paid for them. You give them to him. But it comes costly, always. For us to say, ah, it's no big deal. Jesus took care of it. Don't worry about it. Is you will never, those areas in your life, you'll never defeat them if that's how you're going about it. Because it's no big deal. And those things that are no big deal, I don't put any big deal towards getting rid of them. Third area. This is an area, if you're, if you're new to church, you don't wrestle with this as much. If you're not new to church and maybe grew up in a church or maybe you've been here at Hope many years, you're going to wrestle with this one. And it's the opposite of license. It's called legalism. Listen to Owen. He says, when a man writes or he seeks to correct or he make right, basically, against his sin only with arguments from the issue of the punishment due unto it, this is a sign that sin has taken great possession of the will and that that in the heart there is superfluity. Super, you shouldn't do Owen when you can't talk. Superfluity of naughtiness. I like that. Superfluity of naughtiness. Such a man as opposes nothing to the seduction of sin and lust in his heart, but fear of shame among men or hell from God is sufficiently resolved to do the sin if there were no punishment attending it. Which... But it differs from living in the practice of sin, I know not. He says basically this. If the only thing stopping you from doing it is punishment, then you don't understand the cross. You don't understand what it means to be a Christian. Those who are Christ's are, are activated in their obedience upon gospel principles, have the death of Christ, the love of God, the detestable nature of sin, the, per, the preciousness of communion with God, a deep grounded abhorrency of sin as sin to oppose to any seduction, seduction of sin, to all the working, strivings, writing of lust in their hearts. 
What's he trying to say here? If that's what it is, if that's what makes you follow God, as I checked all the boxes, I got the God boxes checked, I did this, I did this, I did this. Some of you checked off the church box. Does it count? Does it count? How long do you have to stay in the service before it counts? I don't know. When can you leave? You know, that counts, okay? Let me give you an example. It's a picture of my, my wife and I. Let's just say, for instance, that I, I uh, went to the library and I got a book on uh, how to, uh, it's going to be our 20th anniversary here in August. Let's just say I got a, a thing on how to make your 20th anniversary successful. Great. Go get books. Good idea. Guys, I'd re- recommend that. Something like that. And so, so instead of just reading this book about how to do it, I take this thing religiously. I, I shrink it down. I, I ty- retype all the important bullet points. And this book tells me things like treat her nice, ask her how her day goes, uh, look her into her eyes, be chivalrous, you know, open the car door, get the, get the chair out for her. All those kind of things go, go right through that. I think, that's a great idea. That's good. So I, I put them on a piece of paper, okay? And I look at her and I say, honey, let's go out for our 20th anniversary. I'm going to take you to a great restaurant. And she says, that sounds good. And I take on my list and I go, check. Good. All right. So the day comes, all right? The day comes and I say, I bring her flowers. And I just, I take the flowers because the, the thing said, bring her flowers. So I bring her flowers and I go, here. She takes them. She says, oh, thanks. What are they for? I don't say anything. I just go, check. Put that back in my box. And I go to the door and I open the car door for her. And she says, thank you. I don't say anything because it didn't say to respond to that. It just says, open the car door for her. And I close the car door. Before I get in, in the back of the car, I open up, check. I do this all night long. I look her in the eyes. We're having dinner. I look in the eyes and says, how is your day going? Didn't say anything about listening. While she's talking, I take out my list. I check. Check. Boom. This is a great date, right? At the end of this date, she's going to look at me and say, Aw, you just love me so much. And I'm going to look at her and say, I'm just doing my duty. I'm just doing what I'm supposed to be doing. Because look, I can give my little checklist and there it's done. All my checklist is done. Very good. I'll see you in another 20 years. All right? That's how we treat God, a lot of us. Yes, there's duty in following God, but there's delight. God is like a lover. If if your relationship with God is nothing more than checkboxes, you'll have those issues there. Why don't you skip to the fourth one here, just in the interest of time. Just go to, skip a couple, yep. Go to the fourth one. Keep going. One more. There you go. Fourth one. We talked about this issue where the, the Israelites got spanked. If you look at them in the desert, it didn't make any difference to them. Owen talks about this, and he says, God oftentimes, in its providential dispensations, provisions, and orderings, meets with a man and speaks particularly to the evil of his heart. Perhaps some of you right now, God is speaking to you. As he did to Joseph's brethren in the selling of him into Egypt. This makes the man reflect on his sin and judge himself in particular for it. God makes... It uh, to be the voice of the danger, affliction, trouble, sickness that he is under, in or under. Sometimes in the reading of, of the word, God makes a man stay on something that cuts him to the heart and shakes him as to his present condition. More frequently is in the hearing of the word preached. His great ordinance for conviction, conversion, and edification does he meet with men. God often hews men by the sword of his word in that ordinance, strikes directly on their bosom, beloved lust, startles the sinner, makes him engage into the mortification and relinquishment of the evil of his heart. And if that's where you're at this morning and you're saying, oh, 
you make me feel bad about my hump. That's good. That's good. That's a great, that's a gracious gift from God. Now, if his lust has taken such hold on him as to enforce him to break those bands of the Lord and to cast these cords from him, if it overcomes these convictions and gets again into its old posture, if it can cure the wounds it so receives, that soul is in a sad condition. If when God comes to you and speaks by his Holy Spirit, by his word, by people in your life and preaching in every possible way and you no longer hear it, I pray for you. I pray that you, God would do something remarkable in your life. And he loves you so much that he might. Those are the sins that when you hear, you're, you're hearing me talk right now and you, maybe you've read about it in the word, you just go, ah, you know what, no big deal. I just don't want to worry about it. Those are serious sins. The last one I want to list out is from our passage. It's not from John Owen at all. And I think, according to Neil Anderson, is the number one foothold of the enemy in the lives of Americans. And it is simply this. A bitter, unforgiving, demanding heart. Are there people, are there situations that you are bitter about and you're holding on to that. If you know a bitter old man or a bitter old woman, they're 75 years old, I'm looking at people average age of 24, that's what the survey says, 24. If you start here, I can guarantee you're going to end here. It's the prayer of my life to be 90 if the Lord gives me that much breath and not be here. Is it prayer of my life to be 90 and still care? If you're holding that in, I beg for you, pray and say, God, I need to release these people because, you know, they're not the one on the hook. I am. If you're holding bitterness towards others, if you're demanding of God, God, you brought me out here into the wilderness. You, you owe me water. You owe me this land, I shouldn't have to go through these tough people to get there. You owe me this. If that's your thing, I pray that you'd come to a point where you'd say, God, I'm yours. Whatever you'd have for me, I'm an open vessel. Whatever you have for me, and I'll accept it. I take it. You're king, I'm not. So I want to close this morning the same way I started. What hump? Let's pray. God, I just do ask that you would graciously and lovingly and in some ways, God, painfully extract the hump from our backs. You are a brilliant surgeon, Lord. You can do that. God, I pray for everyone hearing my voice right now. I pray, God, that, that you would show them dangerous areas in their lives. lives or areas in their lives that left unmortified, left unkilled, will lead them down a path just like the Israelites to the point where they end up being bitter, grumbling, haters of others and haters of you. God, would you spare everyone in my hearing right now? Would you make us be people who first of all want to worship you and second of all want to kill sin? God, would you do that? 
I pray, Lord God, for those entrenched areas in our lives. Oh God, even if they're entrenched in our lives until the day we die, may we struggle with killing them every day. Every day, God. I pray for that. Lord God, I pray for victory for those in this room who can handle it. Would you set them free for that? Others, as we talked about last week, if if you set them free from some of the stuff, they would never come back to you. But Lord God, those who can and could handle victory, God, even as I'm speaking, by your spirit, would you set them free and heal them of these things? Break our hearts, God. Make us be people who want you more than anything. You are our treasure. So Lord God, we give you permission in this time of worship to speak to us as we take communion, as we pray for one another. God, that this would be a time when you would work in our hearts. We just give you permission, Holy Spirit, to do what you want to do. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.